Well, wherever you are and whatever time it may be, let me welcome you once again to St. Pete's. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of this community. And before we jump into the text, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that we can be gathered together virtually. That although we are separated as a body right now, we are still united in Christ and we're still together by the power of your spirit. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we'd not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our passage today begins with a story that greatly impressed the preacher. He wrote, there was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. So when you're a small city with only a few people, and you're outmatched and outnumbered and surrounded by the powers of an empire, what do you do? Now, the normal course of action is to turn to your council, to turn to your inner circle, your strategists, your military advisors, your wise men and sages. If you were in the realm of Middle Earth, you would call upon Gandalf. Uh, This is where you would expect to find wisdom. But in this story, wisdom isn't found where you would expect to find it. Wisdom's not discerned in the inner circle, in the halls of power and status. Instead, it's the wisdom of a poor, wise man that saves the city. Keep in mind that in the era of Ecclesiastes, a common assumption was that if you were poor, you couldn't be wise. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this situation. So in a paradigm-rattling turn of events, wisdom is found in the person perhaps who looked abandoned, dressed in rags, who had little prestige, who on any given, given day was overlooked, unimpressive, unimportant, a symbol of failure, not success. Wisdom wasn't found in power and status, but in weakness, not high up in the world of the influencers, but in a voice from below. And we don't know what counsel this poor man offered. We don't know if he helped them negotiate a compromise or a surrender or a unique military strategy to win the day. The preacher leaves out out these details because the point is that after having saved the city, shortly after, nobody remembered that man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. And this is what the preacher presses onto us in this passage. Wisdom has the power to save and we might even turn to wisdom for a time only to turn away from it down the road. We can treat wisdom like a first aid kit rather than a way of being, a way of life. The preacher goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 2, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. So keeping in mind that the heart in the Hebraic imagination is not just about our emotions, but our whole being, 
we can hear the preacher saying that there's a way of being that travels down this path of foolishness and there's a way of being that travels down the path of wisdom. But what we must consider is why. Why do we travel down the path of wisdom for a short period of time only to turn aside to the path of foolishness? And when this happens, what's actually taking place within us? So first, let's consider the heart that travels down the path of foolishness, and then we'll consider the heart that travels down the path of wisdom. So first, the heart that travels down the path of foolishness. In the story, once the crisis passes and the city is safe and secure once more, the poor man's forgotten and wisdom is disregarded. And the city went back to a normal And which meant there was no place within the courts of power for someone who was an outsider, for someone who was poor, for someone who needed to be disregarded. And so the status quo went back to being the status quo. He didn't have a part. He no longer had any purpose, any place to serve within the city. But this shows that wisdom is often sought out as a temporary measure We'll use wisdom to bandage up a wound, to be a salve to our pain, to be a solution to the problem, only later to disregard it once the problem passes. You see, it's not unusual to seek out wisdom when it's needed, but this isn't always the baseline of our hearts, is it? And when this happens, it shows that our hearts are inclined toward foolishness. The preacher writes in chapter 10, verse 1, As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We could say that folly is the axe body spray of perfumes. One scholar says a better translation is actually more precious than wisdom and honor is a little folly. And this gets us closer to understanding why it is we can disregard wisdom, why we can turn away to the path of foolishness. Because if we can have our way, we're going to choose a little folly over wisdom and honor. In our heart of hearts, it's because we think a little folly won't be all that harmful. But a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. That's what the preacher tells us. And this is how we begin to ultimately disregard wisdom. And so to make his point, the preacher fills an entire chapter with Proverbs. And we don't have time to examine every proverb in chapter 9, verses 17 through chapter 10, verses 20. But let's try to just draw a sketch of the fool according to these verses. So the fool, they shout and boast and intentionally and unintentionally they destroy good. Even just a little bit of foolishness we told, we're told outweighs and thwarts wisdom. You know, the fool lacks sense, and from the outside looking in, their ways and choices are observably stupid. The fool honors the wrong sort of person. They surround themselves with others like them rather than with the wise. They engulf themselves in groupthink. They are consumed by their own words, and their words are endless. And they begin with foolishness, but end in madness. They are lazy and idle, and often the fool reviles and curses and slanders. They tear down rather than build up. They divide rather than unite. Now, all of this adds up to much more than a little folly. 
It's the path of utter foolishness. And the preacher minces no words. This way of being is observably stupid. And when we take in this whole picture, of course, we want to distance ourselves from it because it does look pretty stupid. This might be an accurate description of someone, but not us. You might even think it sounds like someone you know, but not yourself. But I doubt very many people are aware that they're on the path of foolishness. Fools are not the same as a court jester who knows that their role is to be the butt of the joke. Most fools likely think they're not foolish. They may even consider themselves wise. And this misdiagnosis can afflict your everyday person and even your kings. And that's a point the preacher wants us to take home. We can be unaware that we are walking down the path of foolishness and it doesn't matter who we are. It can afflict everybody. Because at the end of the day, we think that we've only chosen a little folly. Now, it's important we grasp this. The preacher isn't asking whether we're wholesale fools or not. What he is asking is, isn't this true? That we like to have just a little bit of folly in our lives. Not all the foolishness, just some, a harmless amount, or at least what appears to be a harmless amount. But if you're not tracking with me yet, if you don't think you choose a little folly, let's reduce the fool down to two qualities from these Proverbs, just two qualities of foolishness that might make us see our own lives in a different light. The fool, the everyday ordinary fool, is lost and verbose. These are the two qualities, they're lost and verbose. First, the fool is lost, look at verse three. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. And verse 15, the toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. The fool doesn't know where they're going. And even if they think they know where they're going, they don't realize that the end destination will be very different than what they've imagined. For example, they might think they're heading down the path toward financial success, but very clearly be heading toward financial ruin. They might think they're on their way to acclaim, but end up in humiliation. You see, the fool goes about doing whatever is right in their own eyes, but they lack the sense to think about where it leads. They never look up and allow wisdom to show them the folly of the path that they've taken. You see, we may be a little more foolish than we realize because doing what is right in our own eyes is so deeply ingrained in our way of life at this time and this place. You see, our cultural moment is heavily influenced by postmodernism. We're bombarded with this message that the only truth is the truth that you believe. There's no universal or objective truth out there to be discovered or discerned. The only right is what is right for you. It's all subjective. It's all a matter of opinion, a matter of interpretation. And at the end of the day, you must be true to you. And this is the cultural baseline. And it's become such the standard that we might not even be aware we're living this way, or if we are, we might not even see what the problem is. So let me just list a few ways that we can live out doing whatever is right in our own eyes. 
When you have to make a life decision, do you make it on your own? Or if you've made up your mind about what you do and want to get advice, do you only seek out people that you know are going to affirm the decision you've already made? When it comes to our own lifestyle choices, are they based off of extravagance and indulgence? The way you spend your money and your time, if you stepped back and looked at it, what's it invested in? Who's it centered around? Who's making the decisions about how you make your money, what you do with your money, and how you use your time? You see, usually in these instances, we're doing what's right in our own eyes. We can even envision God in such a way that he never disagrees with us. He always shares our opinion. And if we're doing this, we're just doing what's right in our own eyes. But how is doing what's right in our own eyes a little bit of folly? Well, the answer is that when we do what's right in our own eyes, we either have to disregard what's right in God's eyes, or assume we're doing what's right in God's eyes, or say we're doing what's right in God's eyes, but not be aware that what we're doing is actually not approved in God's eyes. See, there's a significant difference between doing what is right in our own eyes and doing what is pleasing to the Lord's eyes. Wisdom sees this, but folly doesn't. And doing what is right in our own eyes is a refrain from the book of Judges, and I've chosen it because it's the posture of our heart that convinces us that we'll find our own happiness and flourishing so long as we're true to ourselves. But ultimately, when we live this way, it leads us to emptiness and isolation and corruption and violation and bankruptcy. We see this time and time again in the book of Judges. This is the posture of the heart that gets us lost on the path of foolishness. But second, the fool is also verbose. As we read in verses 12 through 14, fools are consumed by their own lips, and at the beginning of their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. Now, if I'm wise, this point should be of fewer words. So how are we prone today to be verbose like the fool? We are a generation of information over wisdom. We're more inclined to ask, have you heard the latest, than to ask, what are you discerning in life? The accumulation of much knowledge and information to be well-informed is more a virtue than to be wise. And we don't say this explicitly, of course, but it's how we live. Because information, it's instant and it's quick and it's often echoed and repeated without any discernment. We just parrot what we've heard and we consume in abundance. We can follow sound bites. We can articulate the contours of a celebrity's life. And we might even be able to articulate the most important social matters of the moment. But the truth is we have never known so much and understood so little. We can be informed, but not wise. And we talk and we talk and we talk about what we know. We share and post and retweet and speak, but it's just multiplying words. And in the end, this is foolishness if we're well informed and informing others, but our own lives go unchanged. 
Because wisdom isn't just knowing a lot of information, it's knowing how to apply knowledge to a given situation and to live by it. The fool is lost and verbose. The fool does what is right in their own eyes and mistakes information for wisdom. And we're on the path of the fool if we choose just a little folly over wisdom. And I believe we're all prone to this because I know, at least for myself, I'm prone to this. So we've thought about how our hearts can be inclined to the path of foolishness. But now let's move toward the path of wisdom. How do our hearts move in that direction? Our passage began with a story of wisdom, which greatly impressed the preacher. And I know of another story about wisdom, and I think this story would also greatly impress the preacher were he alive today. It's the story of the monks of Tiberine. There were eight Trappist monks at Our Lady of the Atlas Monastery in Algeria, and they lived during Algeria's horrific civil war in the 1990s. And in the face of terrible violence, violence which threatened their very lives, the question they faced as a community was, should we stay or should we go? And they dealt with this question together as a community, as a family, and they were trying to discern not what's right in our eyes, but what's pleasing to the Lord's eyes. And as they sought wisdom, as they tried to discern, they weren't initially in agreement about what they should do because what they were really wrestling with was what would their actions communicate through their predominantly Muslim neighbors? How would they demonstrate Christ's love toward their community? And they knew staying would be incredibly dangerous and yet wisdom led them to stay. So this little monastery of a few people listened to wisdom and like the parable at the beginning of our passage, they find themselves surrounded their compound was besieged and they were kidnapped by 20 armed men and then they were beheaded. The last testament of one of the monks, Christian de Serge, was later discovered. And this is what he wrote. If it should happen one day that I become a victim of the terrorism, which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I asked them to accept that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I asked them to pray for me, for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? Let me ask you, does this sound like wisdom to you? When you hear this story, doesn't part of you want to disregard the wisdom of the monks? Unlike the poor man in the preacher's story, the monk's wisdom didn't rescue the city or their lives. So how is this wisdom? It looks a lot more like foolishness, don't you think? The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. The monks knew that wisdom appeared in Christ crucified. 
And this isn't where we expect to find wisdom. Jesus, by all appearances, looked abandoned. He was stripped of his garments. He had lived simply with little prestige, and his death was a symbol of failure and not success. But like the poor man in the preacher's story, wisdom isn't always found in power and status. It can be found in weakness and in a voice from below, crying from two crooked beams of a cross. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. The way of Christ's self-sacrificial love is greater than all the wisdom of every, every philosophy and religion put together and multiplied. Yes, sometimes wisdom means a city is saved and delivered, and sometimes wisdom means that a life is given for the sake of love. You see, because our hearts are prone to desire a little folly, we're also prone to treat wisdom as a first aid kit. We'll seek out wisdom when the sirens and alarms are blaring, when we face a crisis or major dilemma or decision. But the path of wisdom is not a first aid kit. It's a way of being, a way of life, an allegiance to the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, who is our wisdom. So the question is, what needs to happen in our hearts so that we find this path of wisdom? First, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what we read in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, in some instances throughout Scripture, when people encounter the presence of God, they literally fall down and crumble in fear. That can sometimes be the experience of God. But in this instance, this isn't about the emotion of fear before the Lord. Rather, in this case, it's much more about knowing our place before God. If we fear God, it means we choose to acknowledge how prone we are to a little bit of folly. How often we are inclined to do what is right in our own eyes. And a fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement that our thoughts are not one and the same with God's thoughts. That our ways are not the same as God's ways. And that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so God's ways are higher than our own ways. So God's thoughts are higher than our own thoughts. And so if we choose the wisdom of fearing the Lord, it means we'll also choose a different type of foolishness. Instead of a little bit of folly, we'll choose the foolishness and weakness of God because of that is his power at work in the cross of Christ to reconcile and restore everything to himself. The monks clearly feared the Lord. Their allegiance was the way of the cross. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is our allegiance? In your heart of hearts, do you come to God because you think God will improve your life? Do you see God more as an add-on, an occasional thought? Or do you come to God because your allegiance is to him and his ways, no matter where they may lead or how costly they might be? Second, the path of wisdom means we don't follow the ways of our culture by doing what's right in our own eyes. The way of wisdom seeks to do what is pleasing in the eyes of God. And so we have to become familiar 
with how God has revealed himself in Christ and throughout all of scripture. And we discern wisdom, not on our own, not in isolation, but like the monks in the setting of a community. Wisdom is communally discerned as we listen to God's word and spirit and ask Jesus to guide and lead us. Third, the path of wisdom isn't just acquiring more and more information or knowing a lot. Wisdom is getting after the heart of God and being empowered to walk in the ways of God, which often looks like sacrificial love for the good of others. And it's not always instant and quick. And that's hard for us in this moment. Wisdom requires patience and discernment and a willingness to slow down and learn and listen to our community, to the spirit, to the word. Wisdom isn't on demand and it's not easily consumed like Instagram. It requires patience. Essentially, wisdom for any follower of Jesus is this question, where is Jesus leading us? Because Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He knows what is right and what is true and what is the best course of action in any given moment. And often the way of wisdom requires sacrifice, a willingness to lay down our preferences and comfort and allegiances and to choose the way of the cross by choosing to count others as more significant than ourselves. And so as we endure a pandemic of unprecedented scale, and as each day the news is filled with reports of violence and racism and death, We're especially aware that we need wisdom. But these disruptions to our ordinary are actually just pulling us into reality as it really is. And we can be tempted to seek wisdom out right now as a first aid kit, as a quick solution. But what we actually need is the way of wisdom to engage the world as it really is, not just now, but for the whole remainder of our lives. And so what does it look like for us to choose the path of wisdom at a time such as this? And for a church that's predominantly Caucasian, such as St. Peter's Fireside, what does wisdom look like for us? And I know that it's unusual for me to speak to one specific ethnic group of our church, but it's necessary. And while I believe this can benefit all of us, Right now, I want Caucasian members of our church to listen up. Wisdom right now means listening and learning and amplifying. Listening, learning, and amplifying. First, listen to what scripture says about race. If you don't know where to start, read Ephesians chapter 2 again and again and again. Memorize it. God has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between ethnic groups. And we have a part to play in this, reforming our own lives and deconstructing systemic and systematic racism. Because currently we benefit from a society that has a history of being built by what is right in the eyes of white people. And as we listen to God, we also listen to people of color. Listen to them and challenge yourself to believe them. Can you hear their cries for justice? 
Do you listen to their words and their experiences? Or do you back away and try to come up with another explanation? Listen to the experts. Buy some books and read them and digest them and wrestle with them and make up for what your formation throughout school lacked. Start with Rediscipling the White Church by David Swanson and then read Ibram Kindi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And as I read this week, I was moved by this quote. The beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be an anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism where you find it, including in yourself, and it's the only way forward. So if we want to join God in tearing down the dividing wall of hostility, it's not enough to not be racist. We must be anti-racism. Do you feel content? with the way the world is as you hear these cries for justice? Or are you willing to find a way forward? You see, to be not racist is to say, well, I've done enough. But to be anti-racist is to say there is more to be done and I can do more. I also want to say, if we listen, we'll hear wisdom telling us not to reach out to people of color to ask them to teach us. It's not their responsibility to correct us. We as Caucasian people must find our own error, our own sin and our own racism and work it out with God to root it out of us. You see, the spirit is at work and we can lean in and there's enough resources for us to learn. So as you listen, as you learn, Amplify voices that embody and express God's wisdom. I want to encourage you to listen to two people right now. Albert Tate, who's a pastor in California, and Esau McCauley, who's a priest in the Anglican Church. And I'll share some of their resources this week. Now, I know that as a Canadian, it's easy to look down at what's happening at the United States and to be appalled. And like many, we should be appalled by what's happening. But Canada is rife with our own problems of racism. And if we want to be a part of a better future, we need to move forward with wisdom. Seek God's wisdom. Discern how to act in the context of community and patiently apply wisdom as we seek his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because in the new heaven and the new earth, our diversity will be celebrated and will no longer divide. We are not going to be colorblind, but rather we're going to be enamored with the beautiful diversity God has made within humanity. Each face and race reflecting the beauty and fullness of God. That's where we're heading. And if this is where we're going, if this is the destiny of humanity, if this is what the new humanity and a new creation looks like, let's get to work to see glimmers of it here and now, to see more and more of what's really true appearing in the present. Wisdom invites us into the way of self-giving love that counts others as more significant than ourselves. Which means that we no longer choose to sit comfortably in a system designed to benefit us. 
It requires us, wisdom requires us to make decisions and to take actions that do not immediately benefit ourselves. And friends, this isn't a sprint. There's no quick fix. It's a marathon and it requires patience, but not complacency and putting what we learn into practice and partnering with people to work toward a future in which racism becomes but a memory of the past. In our hearts though, in our hearts, we have to choose a little bit of folly or the foolishness of God, the path of foolishness or the path of wisdom. And Jesus invites us to pursue his wisdom that appears foolish and like all wisdom, it might be disregarded, but it's ultimately the wisdom of God at work to remake this broken world by remaking our broken lives.